Hi, this is Sebastian DeCastel, author of Trader's Blade, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. You're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. I am your host, Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. And we're back with another, yet another fantastic episode. Today's guest is Sebastian DeCastel, probably by far the most attractive individual we've ever had on the program so far. Um, he is the author of the Great Coat series, including Trader's Blade and Night's Shadow. We have the wonderful opportunity to Skype with him all the way from the Hague, Netherlands. And we had an epic conversation involving Celtic whistles, uh, swashbuckling, sword porn, so many exciting things uh, to, to talk about. We couldn't even actually fit the entire interview into one episode. So we split it up over two episodes, part one this week, part two one week from now. Um, so we hope you do enjoy the conversation. It was a lot of fun. Wouldn't you say, Phil? Yeah, Sebastian was so awesome that, that we had to split it up into two. But yeah, he's he was a great guest. Uh, really, really gets us, I think. Mm -hmm. Gets the vibe. So that was good to have him on and definitely look out for part two for some epic lightning round action and go buy his books. Absolutely. Trader's Blade and Night's Shadow out courtesy of Joe Fletcher Books available on Amazon now. Go pick them up, read them. They are pretty badass. We will waste no further time. Here is our interview part one with Sebastian DeCastell. Enjoy the conversation. When today's guest was 15 years old, he read a book called Bard and rightfully decided that it would be the most appropriate career path to follow. You know, traveling, performing, telling stories, and occasionally swinging a sword. Alas, job openings were scarce, and so he compensated for it by doing everything from touring with a rock band to writing books to coordinating sword fights for the theater. You get the idea. His Great Coats Quartet series is described as the Three Musketeers meets a Game of Thrones. It's a swashbuckling tale about three disgraced swordsmen seeking redemption. Book one, Traitor's Blade, and book two, Knight's Shadow, are in stores now, published by Joe Fletcher Books in the U.S. and U.K., and Penguin in Canada. He hails from Vancouver, B.C., but today is Skyping all the way from The Hague, Netherlands, just outside of Amsterdam, the Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Sebastian de Castell to the show. Hey, guys. Sebastian, thanks so much for uh, hanging out with us today. It's great to have you on the program. Night's Shadow just came out uh, in March, so you've got two books in this series available now. Um, for those who aren't up to speed on The Great Coats Quartet, could you maybe tell us a little bit about the series? Sure. Um, so The Great Coats is, is really the story of these three uh, traveling, swashbuckling magistrates uh, who are called greatcoats, whose job it was to travel the, the land in, and administer justice. Um, and often, because it's a very corrupt country that they live in, uh, they would have to fight duels in order to enforce uh, their verdicts, because Tristia, the country in which the books are set, is... It's a, it's in a, it's, it's a sort of almost in a, a European Renaissance kind of era, but the country itself is still very feudal, and so 
they have these traveling judges, and, and this is what these guys do. And the stories themselves are set five years after the king that had brought them together, that had created this order of traveling judges, is killed by the dukes uh, so that they can return the country to the situation that they liked, which is whoever you know has the most power uh, gets to uh, decide what laws they want enforced. So it's it's really a story about, uh, it's a series about Falchio, Kest, and Brasti, these three great coats, as they try to figure out what the their dead king's last enigmatic mission was all about. That's probably kind of a, a weird, long-winded um, description. So, so probably, you know, Three Musketeers meets Game of Thrones with lots of banter, the shorter version. <laughs> Very good. So you've got uh, book one and book two. Now, you just uh, released the title for book three. That's right. Book three is called Saint's Blood. Um, my apologies to everybody who thought it was called Tyrant's Throne. We changed the name halfway through, which, in fact, we also did with Night Shadow, which was originally called Great Coat's Lament. But um, uh, I just, you know, you, you write the book and then you get to the end and you're like, this is what it should be called. So in terms of the series itself, the first book is really uh, Falchio Valmond and, and his two sort of closest friends and, and allies trying to figure out what this, what this quest is. And at the end of that book, they start to find out what it is they needed to do. And the second book, I, I won't give too many spoilers because not everybody's had a chance to read them both yet, you know, takes them on a somewhat darker journey as the implications of what they swore they would do starts to become more apparent. And, uh, and as Falcio himself starts to, you know, suffer every kind of uh, misfortune one could imagine. So since your, since your novels follow these swashbuckling magistrates, uh, you obviously are very interested in sword fighting. You have a background in it as well. I do. Uh, I used to be a fencer for a while, not not a not professional, but um, you know, sort of club level. Uh, and you know, when I started fencing, uh, I, I was asked to do some theatrical fencing, which is you know, it's it's um, it's it's like a, what you would imagine you know, two people putting on a show with swords would look like. Uh, and then I was asked to start doing some uh, fight choreography for theater, and then I, I did that for a while, and then I got to choreograph a production of Richard the Third in in London, England, and you know, it was it was a blast. Uh, playing with swords is a really good time, and uh, that kind of combination of, of fencing, which where you you know. It's a sport, and you're getting to really work at it and see what happens in your body when you're, you know, hit with the end of a sword. And getting to find your reflexes and find that sort of sense of pacing and timing was a really nice part of it. And then when I got into uh, fight choreography, actually seeing how you tell a story with a fight as opposed to just having a bunch of moves became uh, just a whole other dimension for me. So it really appealed to the performer side of me, and it appealed to the storyteller side of me. It's it's interesting to me because when I was a kid, I, I, I bought a wooden sword mm -hmm. and um, basically I just hit my friends with it, and there were, there was really no uh, finesse to it. I just <laughs> swing it swing it crazily at my friends. I, I guess they probably all thought I was trying to brutally hurt them, but, wow. uh, but the, the sword actually. <laughs> well, not completely. Okay. If, I, if, if, if I had a wooden sword now, I'd probably still swing it around crazily. But it, it's interesting because, you know, musicians have other musicians they can watch. Uh, writers have writers they can read. Who, who do sword fighters have to, to watch? So, uh, for example, who are, who are some sword fighters in fiction that have inspired you or, or even real-life sword fighters that you've heard about historically? Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, when you're – 
because you know when you're talking about sort of in, in fencing, you know, there's there's a lot of tremendously talented fencers uh, alive today and and sort of have been for a long time. I was never sort of you know in, in that mode of of looking for heroes in the world of fencing. When you're choreographing fights, you know there, there's actually this incredibly rich Hollywood tradition of of amazing swordmasters like Bob Anderson, who you know was the um, he was he was one of uh, Errol Flynn's uh, stunt doubles, and then he choreographed uh, a lot of the fights for Star Wars, the first Star Wars. He choreographed a lot of the fights for Princess Bride uh, and for uh, even Lord of the Rings. He was still kind of going strong there, and then you have these other guys like. Um, uh, Bill Hobbs, another uh, British guy, who choreographed fights for uh, films like uh, The Duelists, which was Ridley Scott's first film. Which, if you've never watched it, you know has some of the most realistic sword fighting you know that you'll ever see. Uh, you know, and, and and you know, in terms of showing like what yeah, 18th and 19th century sword fights might look like. So there are these kind of people to look at. Um, you know, in, in terms of, of of history, you know, sort of famous historical sword fighters. There's, there's sort of any any number of them. I'm I'm actually starting to get interested. I was asked to write this um, little article for Tor.com a while back on you know five duelists in literature, and I I ran into this weird problem where I could find all of these male sword fighters, you know, who these male literary sword fighters who are amazing. And I really was stretching to find uh, a female sword fighter, uh, you know, or, or female sword fighters to add to that article. And I don't just mean female heroines. I'm not talking about like, you know, Red Sonia or, 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 you know, Katniss or, you know, Everdeen or, you know, any kind of not just the generic sort of badass warriors, but actual duelists, like actual fencers. And so it was kind of interesting because I, I partly maybe it's just that I'm not well read enough, but I really struggled to find these kind of female swordmasters in literature, when in fact there's actually a lot of them in in actual history, right? There's like there was a famous duelist, a, a fencer who was nicknamed La Jaguarina, which um, is horrible <laughs> Spanish pronunciation, uh, but you know the the jaguar. And mm. so now, you know, that's kind of one of the things I want to do in, in uh, upcoming books uh, in futures is I, I kind of want to find some of those historical female sword fighters and and kind of understand a little bit more about what they did and, and why they did it and how they survived uh, in that environment. Because to me, those, those make for some really, really interesting stories. Because when you think about it, our attraction to the sword is because it is a, a weapon that requires something beyond strength and speed. It requires a kind of finesse. It requires uh, cleverness and imagination. You know, they used to call fencing, I think they, people used to refer to it as chess with weapons. Um, and I'm not sure how much I buy that notion, but but there is a component of artistry uh, that's required. So I'm really kind of interested in that side of it and what in what those that sort of notion of artistry looks like when it's brought into combat. Yeah, and in addition to sword fighting, you have quite a diverse background of professions that you've pursued over the years. You're an archaeologist for for four hours. In addition, you're you're also a musician. Uh, Philip and I are both musicians. Philip is a drummer for the Candy Ditches. Um, um, I'm a musician as well. I, I play guitar and drums, and and uh, definitely wanted to touch on on the influence of music and storytelling. Could you maybe just give us a little overview of your uh, musical background? Uh, you were in a Beatles tribute band, correct? Sure. And by the way, if if you just plug the instruments you guys play because you're forming a band, I'm not going to be the bass player. 
Damn it. Okay, so forget it. All right. Well, there goes one of my questions. For yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be the bass player. Uh, no. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I've been playing music since, uh, since you know, since my sort of late teens. I, I was a late bloomer in, in that, as in everything else. And once I started, there's really two sorts of musicians to my mind. There's there's the guys and women that are just what I think of as really great studio musicians, where their their technique is just fantastic. And and then there's the ones that are performers, where you you're not the best guitar player, but you sort of you know you you bring something in performance on stage in that particular medium. And that's more that's sort of where I come from. So for me, it's always been about you know, performing. But I started early on, uh, and then I, I ended up in a lot of weird kind of cover bands. So when I started playing professionally, we had this band and, and we played, uh, you know, kind of British invasion music. At that particular time in Vancouver, none of the venues were actually paying musicians. They were doing what what's called and is still called ticket gigs which for anyone who hasn't had the joy of experiencing that, it's where the venue basically gives you a bunch of tickets that you hand out to your, your, basically your friends, and then they pay at the door, and then you get like a dollar for every ticket stub that comes back. And, uh, and that's just kind of a terrible system. So we, when we were starting out, we didn't want to do that. We had this band called The Neurotics, and uh, we, didn't, we didn't want to have to do ticket gigs, but we didn't have a name, so there was no way to, to kind of get paid. So we, we basically wore wigs and polyester suits and had British accents, and we pretended to be a, a weird British band that was on tour uh, so that we would get paid. And we managed to get gigs that way, um, <laughs> you know, staying in character the whole time. And then uh, by the time people figured out that, hey, how, you know, why is this British band never seemed to leave like <laughs> months? Uh, it was too late because we were already, you know, somewhat more established. So, uh, you know, that was kind of where it started for me. And then uh, in that time, you know, I, I, I played in, uh, I had an original band that, you know, we did the thing that you do. We wrote uh, we wrote songs and, and we went on tour and we got to, you know, go to Australia and do a lot of fun things and, and, and have an adventure. And, and that's kind of always what it's been about for me is just, it's, you know, it's the adventure, especially playing music live, right? You do it because there's always that, experience of adventure you never really know what's going to happen you never really know if it's going to go well or not every once in a while you're not really sure if you're going to get out of the venue alive so <laughs> so we kind of did that so in yeah so in the in in the last and i never stopped so even when i was doing other things i was always still playing music in fact you know i love the netherlands it's 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 really terrific here but the one thing that's killing me is you know i'm not in a band here so I'm not getting that experience of, of getting to be out on stage. And it's, it's only been like two and a half months, but that's still kind of, you know, I'm starting to go a little squirrely. But yeah, that's uh, so that's kind of how I got started. You know, subsequent to that, you know, I've, I've played in God, it feels like every kind of band. I, I played John Lennon in a Beatles tribute uh, every once in a while. And, and that's like a whole other wig and a whole other terrible. <laughs> Can you give us a John Lennon uh, impression quickly? You know what? People ask me that sometimes, and, and, and it's really so. It's really tricky because when you do this, especially if you do lots of different shows. So I only do the Beatles thing a few times a year. You have to always have your trigger phrase, and so you try to come up with a phrase that sticks in your head um, to refine the accent. So mine has always been. Um, I'm not saying we're better than Jesus or greater than Jesus. We're just we're just sort of fatter than Jesus. Very thin. <laughs> 
And so that's my that's my John Lennon. That's spot on. Wow. That's good. That was pretty that was pretty great. I know, and, and it's funny because I have to always start with that phrase. So so if you you know, imagine if you're a camera crew and you're following me around like right before I get on stage, if if I'm running from one thing to the gig, you'll see me off in the corner going, you know, I'm playing with better than Jesus. So yeah, that's uh, that's my music career in a nutshell. So then I presume you're a guitar player most of the time. Or? Uh, yeah, I play guitars. Uh, I play guitar. I play keyboards. I play bass. Sometimes uh, I, I sing uh, a lot in these bands. I got to be the Gentile singer in a Jewish wedding band. That was fun. <laughs> you always have to have one. You have to, you have to have one one Gentile in the band. Keeps it interesting. Rock and roll. Yeah. But uh, probably my main instrument is is um, is guitar. But I try to pick up lots of stuff whenever I can. I, I, I started picking up uh, Celtic uh, whistle and, uh, and Celtic fiddle a while back just to, just to have something new to try. And in fact, the only instrument I have with me in The Hague is the, is the penny whistle. And I'm horrible at it. And I'm convinced that, it, that the frequencies pass perfectly through the walls. So all the other people that live next door to us, I think, are having to hear me play my horrible Celtic whistle. What is a, excuse my ignorance, but <clears throat> what is a Celtic whistle like? What is it? What does it uh, look like? Or it's just, what does it's it just, sound like? It's like a penny. It sounds like this. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so that's how, te- A, how terrible oh. and how horrible it sounds. I was, well, you were, re- you were really ready for that. <laughs> you had it on standby. You're like, I'm going to show off my Celtic whistle that's ability. Right. I carry me everywhere just in case. No, it's it's. So I have this weird problem where when I'm writing, so I'm at my de- my writing desk. Sometimes I I need to like I need to go into that mode of uh, of playing music. So you know, back home, you know, I have a keyboards and I have a guitars around, and so you just like your brain doesn't work for writing all of a sudden, and you have to kind of shift the gear, you know, switch which part of the brain you're using, and so you pick up an instrument and you start playing, and and then you can you can kind of express uh, emotions a little more directly. So when I'm when I'm writing and I get you know if I get frustrated or really angry or I'm just trying to resolve an, an emotional beat that's going to appear in the writing, you know I, I can't do it. Like you you can't just thump the keyboard really hard because that doesn't do any good. <laughs> so I'll shout and swear, but that's not very rewarding. So so I always need like an instrument. And so here in the Hague, all I have is the whistle. <laughs> and so like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, it's this tragic moment and he's really pissed off and you know i start playing celtic whistle i was wondering if you just keep it in your sleeve so you can just pull it out whenever it's right whenever you need to you know what you never know when uh, when you're going to be in a european city somewhere and you're going to get mugged and a guy's going to come out with a knife you got to be ready so i got the celtic, celtic whistle, whistle. <laughs> you know what next time if, if somebody comes up to you and asks for your wallet you pull out a penny whistle and you start playing that horrible horrible celtic <laughs> Re, uh, jigs and reels you'd be surprised how fast they run <laughs> that's i would run for sure <laughs> we play you a song sir <clears throat> exactly i could give you my wallet or i could play <laughs> mary's w- wedding for you on celtic on the penny whistle and you mentioned in an interview before that music gives a, a sense of pacing how else do you think music has kind of influenced the way that you write your fiction for me, it comes up in a couple of ways. I mean, I mean, the first thing that's kind of interesting. So, you know, you guys have, have probably both written songs as well. So, you know, one of the things you learn when you when you learn about writing pop songs, for example, is you know the typical pop song has you know three choruses, right? Mm-hmm. And 
And the peaks are really interesting because the the first chorus is is never the big chorus, but it you know it, it takes the you know it takes the song up to a sort of a place, and then the second chorus you know is always the it, it generally in a pop tune is like the biggest chorus. It's you know it's the the loudest, and the third chorus is usually not quite as big, but but kind of. Um, is the most emotional, you know, like that's where a word will change here or there, or just something will change. And it, and it's funny because that kind of parallels how a lot of novels tend to work. So there's a lot of things you can take out of the the, the feeling of, um, of of writing and performing a song into that. For me, more, more directly though, I, I write a lot by uh, when I go running, and you know when I go, I'm a terrible runner, and so um, I, I get bored really fast. So I'll often listen to music, and and then I tend to come up with scenes and stories because I'm I'm listening to particular uh, songs. So Trader's Blade, you know, had you know I I, th- I think I once wrote a, a quick article about like the ten songs that shaped that book because it'll just be like little parts of the song that, and I'll, I'll loop them over and over which is, you know, really unhealthy. Because, you know, you're listening to what may in fact be a terrible song. It just happens to inspire a particular thought in your head. And I'll loop them over and over and over um, while I'm kind of composing the scene in my head. So that that's kind of where it plays in for me. And what, what were some of those uh, songs that you had on uh, your playlist? Well, some of them are pretty embarrassing. Um, but... <laughs> So well, the the funny one is so there's a particular scene in uh, in Trader's Blade that takes place in a city called Riju, where Falcio has his first fight with these guys that are uh, trying to kill the girl that he's he's kind of sworn he was going to protect. Chris Cornell's James Bond theme that he wrote ages ago uh, oh. for Casino Royale is called uh, "You Know My Name," and in fact, that line "You Know My Name" shows up in the book. And the song has like a, this, these very energetic choruses, but it also has these brilliant brief pauses right before the chorus kicks in. And it so perfectly parallels the, the timing of pulling back a sword in preparation for a thrust that um, I, I would play that song on a loop all the time. So each of the great coats basically had their own fight song, and, and that was Falcio's. Kest's fight song was uh, it's called Ratatat by um, Mirando I think or uh, I think the name of the band is and it's kind of an electronic piece of music and it's it's really weird it's got this weird funky stilted timing uh, that I associate with his sort of sword fighting style so I, I, I tend to use music that way as far as the great coats quartet world we talked to a lot of people about this shift in fantasy where realistic Fantasy tends to be more popular these days with there's like a lower magic, you know, magic is less abundant in the world. Mm-hmm. I think without giving away a spoiler, I hope always, always shout spoiler before. So spoiler, <laughs> you know, it's hard there's to start a- it out before you've said what you're going to say. Right? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> But you go ahead. There's a little bit of a fantastical element at the beginning of the the story um how prevalent is that in your in your world or is it more rooted in like a more realist realistic kind of historical fantasy kind of world well you know let me sort of put it a couple of different ways because because when we talk about the notion of realism in, in fantasy or really in any kind of literature there's sort of two dimensions to that 
in this case, you know, you're sort of talking about like how mundane a world it is. And I don't mean mundane as in boring. I mean mundane as in the literal sort of definition of that which is, uh, you know, that which is kind of uh, non-supernatural, non-exceptional. So the Great Coats books don't tend to have a lot of magic in them. But part of that is because my notion of realism is about staying true to the perspective of a particular character. And the thing that bugs me when I read some fantasy novels is it's not that there's magic in it. It's that it's it's actually that everybody seems to know how it works. And, you know, so you'll have like two guys in a tavern and like they're both, you know, sort of soldiers, you know, like fairly lower class guys. And all of a sudden one's like, well, as you know, you know, the fifth level of the black magic of the Emerald Sphere uh, requires a spell that does this. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Not because I don't buy the magic, but because I don't buy two guys in a bar knowing how it works. We all use cell phones. How many of us in this conversation can basically say, well, you know, the cell phone frequency of a GSM, you know, unit is running at four, you know, 14 gigahertz and it travels over this. We don't know these things. And so what I tend to do with the great coats is I don't allow the reader to know any more about magic than Falcio, who's, who's the narrator, than he knows. And, you know, mm. he hates magic. You know, to him, magic is like, it's horrible. It's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's dangerous. Uh, it mostly seems to work in favor of rich people. Which is kind of the most realistic thing I think I've, I've put in there about magic, because if, if we had magic in our world, you can pretty much bet the only people that had it would be, you know, rich people and the mafia. And so it's so that so that tends to be where it's at. When when magic does appear, I tend to write magic that has that is connected to something physical. So the 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 stuff that we tend to see, you know, in the in the opening for traders is is a kind of a dust. You know, it's a kind of a, a, a poisonous dust, and and you know that has chemical properties. It, it's and and it's I like to play where we don't totally see the dividing line between the chemical and the magical, because that's what it would feel like. I think if we were watching somebody you know use magic it'd be hard to tell like what part of this is 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 somehow physics and what part of this is is supernatural that that's interesting because i think in some ways alchemy is kind of, was kind of viewed as magic a long time ago it was kind of like a pseudo magic so that kind of element interests me like the the difference between you know, chemical and magical like what is created by people and what is actual real magic i was looking up monsters the other day and there's some kind of monster it was called like a lacrota or something like that yeah. and apparently this monster was really scary to people but we would know it as a hyena it's just a hyena right but the first time you see a hyena you're like what the fuck is <laughs> what is that yeah so that's one ugly like, dog it must be magical yeah i like that approach in fantasy where uh, there's still mystery and there's still like, what is this and where is this going? I, th I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, because there's kind of this real shift or this, I think, what gets called a shift towards, quote, gritty, realistic fantasy. But I think it's really important to remember that, you know, realism in a, in a novel really has to do with how, how true are are the characters because I like a lot of I like a lot of grimdark stuff. But when I was writing the Great Coats books, what kind of makes them a little bit different is that we're dealing with fairly idealistic heroes. I mean, that's basically what I wanted to do when I was writing the books. Is I wanted to write about the kind of heroic characters, you know, very flawed, but but still ultimately trying to be good people. 
characters that I loved when I first got into fantasy, but I wanted to put them in the kind of ugly, gritty, corrupt worlds of that, that we associate with sort of more grimdark fiction. And we, we like those worlds because they more closely parallel our understanding of our own world, right? You know, where things do tend to be gray. But one of the things that you can kind of go astray on, and, and it, it sort of turns me off sometimes if I find this in the book, is when all the characters are super dark. And you, because that doesn't reflect, you know, my problem with that is it doesn't reflect the people I know. Like, it doesn't reflect the world that I've seen. Um, and so when we're talking about, you know, well, even, uh, you know, I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. I mean, probably everybody pretty much on the planet is, you know, <laughs> some people are getting a little bit turned off. But, but it's funny, like one of the reasons why people sometimes get turned off, I think, is totally valid. It's when people are sort of saying, you know, yes, I get it. It's a war and there's violence, but it, it becomes fairly unrealistic storytelling when every time you need a shift, when every time you need a dramatic beat, that dramatic beat comes from an act of totally wanton and craven violence. We know that people, yeah, there's lots of bad people in the world, but even in, you know, if you take the War of the Roses, that, that era, which in a lot of ways Game of Thrones is, is kind of based around, there were still some pretty nice people and they weren't stupid. There were very clever, very good, noble people in that time. And it's, it's that mixture that's interesting to me. So when I write the Great Coats books, what fascinates me is what happens if you have a very idealistic person set in a, in a very unidealistic world? And what happens to them? You know, how do they deal with that clash? And and so, you know, whenever we're talking about realism, it's I think it's it's always important to think of you know what's real in terms of characters and and dramatic action because I, I don't mind like you know I don't read a lot of books about elves, but hell, you know, I'm on board if there's a book about elves where the characters feel real and have that diversity to them. Yeah, they're not just traipsing around the forest and making uh, grand proclamations. <laughs> Seems to be the the big elf elf thing I see. That's why I love uh, that's why I love uh, Sapkowski's Witcher series because his elves are like kind of crazy. Like live, they live in the woods and they scare people and they shoot arrows at them and they're not majestic or anything. They're kind of not kind of elves you want to run across, basically. Mostly for me though, it's just you know like what's the difference from one elf to another? Because if you can. You know the 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 trick is, and probably you know a lot of uh, probably a lot of smarter people than me have talked about this before. But if you're writing like elves, and you've got you know lots of different elves in your book, you got to be able to replace the word elves with black people and have it not appear to be a completely sort of ignorant kind of racist text. Whether your elves are like good noble forest elves or whether they're like gritty you know dark violent elves, if they're all kind of the same then they're really just, you know, it's, it's really just a sort of a, an, an internally created stereotype. And uh, so that's what I'm always looking for. Like I say, I don't mind, like, let's throw some elves in there, but they, they better be elves that are as diverse as, you know, human beings. You have recently landed yourself a, a new publishing deal in addition to the Trader's Blade um, action that you have going on. Now, this is a eight book deal over four years. That's right. So basically that's two right. books a year. Yeah, yeah, it's a funny process. I have to, I have to write. Basically, I have to write three books a year um, on contract, and then, and then when you're when you're writing books, you, you know, you you kind of have to write an, another book a year in order for your agent to have something to pitch later. So, so I'm really sort of at four books a year. 
Well, but but when you're writing full time, it's not so bad, right? Like remember that a lot of a, a lot of really big writers are, you know, they also teach full time or they they do something full time and and they're writing, you know, in the evenings. So I'm kind of lucky because you know I I have a deal that allows me to to uh, to just be writing, you know, interspersed with the occasional, you know, John Lennon gig. Um, <laughs> So yeah, uh, but but it's it's kind of an exciting deal. It's it's you know the the thing about the world of publishing is it's all over the map. You know there are people who get offered on any given day. You know manuscript will get offered, you know whatever a thousand dollar advance, and then there's people that are getting offered you know a six figure or seven figure advance. What I'm kind of hap- really happy about, and you know I, I benefit from having like just an incredible agent. I mean she's like the She's just the coolest person in the world because she's not a shark. Like uh, Heather Adams is, is my agent, and Mike Bryan, they have an agency together. They're actually nice people, so they're they're not like the like you know, eh, shut up, kid, don't don't come to me till you got something I can sell. All right, now we're gonna grind those people till they cry. You know, they're not like that at all. They're they're all about like they just love books and and but they're also really well connected and and they're really good at at negotiating a good deal and and finding the right home for for books and so I was really lucky in that way and and what I'm happy about is you know I've always wanted to be like a working man you know when it came to to writing in other words and I don't mean the 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 gender term is probably pointless in this but what I mean is I just want to write books and and get paid to write books and be able to make a living off of that. I, I've never been sort of going, you know, if somebody handed me a seven figure book deal, I would I would just freak out. Which isn't to say that I don't want my next deal to be seven figures, <laughs> but and I'm sure I'll build up some kind of terrible gambling habit that can support <laughs> some money. But it's just it's not that's that's what I was really proud of and really happy about is for the next four years I, I've got a job and it's a pretty good you know it's a it's a fantastic job and it's but and it and it pays you know reasonably well so so that's kind of that's the thing so now I just have to write all the books in the Spellslinger series and uh, and make sure that they don't suck. That's Philip's aspiration. That's my aspiration someday to be able to just write and get paid for writing. So it must it must be personally satisfying to have achieved that goal. It is. It is. You know, it's funny because I don't come from a community of writers originally, so I didn't know anybody else who had a book deal, for example. Um, so I didn't have anybody to go, hey, you know, is this a good deal or a bad deal? And, you know, like I say, fortunately, I have Heather. So, you know, when Heather says it's a good deal, it's a good deal. The coolest part is that even when all the good things, external things happen, even when you get the book deal, when even when you see the cover of the book, even when you see the book on the shelf, even when you find out there's an award nomination, all that stuff, that stuff's all great. None of it compares to the satisfaction of writing a good chapter, right? And, and finishing a good book. And, and why that's so important is that all of that, the biggest happiness in being an author is attainable irrespective of whether some other person tells you your book's good enough or not. And, and that's, you know, when, when I finished Trader's Blade for the first time, you know, what made me happiest was I'd written the book I most wanted to read. And everything that happened after that, those, all it does is it sparks off that same fundamental sense of source of joy. So, so yeah, you got to just keep writing the books and, and, um, and and it just get, keeps getting you know every time you're, you're right every time you write a better book you feel better and and the counter to that uh, which is is kind of funny is on any day when I don't feel like I'm writing well I I don't feel very good 
uh, and it and it doesn't matter. And that, and on those days, it doesn't matter if somebody you know announces you just got nominated for an award because you're still like, ah, I suck. Have you tried just playing some Celtic whistle to feel better? <laughs> I was, was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, on those days, my friend, there's not enough Celtic whistle in the universe. Uh, yeah, the, the whole universe becomes a Celtic whistle. <laughs> Can we make a Celtic Whistle group together and just do a podcast of Celtic Whistles only? Sure, but I'm not playing the bass Celtic Whistle. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. You know, Philip, I really am excited for folks to hear part two of our conversation with Sebastian T. Castell. It was great to chat with him. Lots of fun conversation to be had. He really did get our vibe. Uh, lots of fun. Be sure to go check out Trader's Blade and Knight's Shadow on Amazon right now. Be sure to read it. Awesome swashbuckling adventure. Yes, go check it out. Stop this recording now because we're going to say some really foul shit. <laughs> and go buy, go buy his books <laughs> now. That's- Stop it now. Now. <laughs> Starting now. And we're glad you followed our instructions. Okay, so we can continue with the outro. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Grim Tidings Podcast. We are also on Twitter, at Grim Dark Fiction. And a special shout-out to our Gremlin of the Week. The fan of the week is C.G. Hickling, one of our great Twitter followers. He says he never, ever, ever misses an episode, and we appreciate his undying loyalty to our podcast. I've never missed an episode either. You know, I haven't, so... Because we're both on the show. Right. But thanks for following us and telling us that because uh, it warms our dark hearts to hear. Thank you, CG Hickling. We appreciate you, your awesome beard, and we don't know what the CG stands for. I'm guessing it was Charlton Glenn or Chris Gerald. I think it's probably Charlton Gut Muncher. <laughs> Maybe. We shall see. But uh, horns to you, C.G. Hickling. Thanks for being an awesome Twitter follower. And we appreciate all of our fans who uh, like our page and blanket us with compliments and uh, send us money. We just don't get enough. So uh, we appreciate everybody listening to the show uh, for serious. Part two of Bastion T. Castell coming your way in just one week. We also have conversations with Ed Erdelak on the way. Chris Fox, who's a cool indie author as well. So plenty more great programs in store. So keep listening. And if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. Until next time, thanks for listening. We'll see you back here on the Grim Paddings podcast. Until then, stay grim, stay dark, and stay true. Beep, 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 beep. Fuck. Beep, 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 beep,